RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Mike Benz is a former State Department official with responsibilities in formulating and negotiating U.S. foreign policy on international communications and information technology matters. Mr. Benz founded the Foundation for Freedom Online as a civil society institution, building on his experience in the role of championing digital freedom around the world in the public sector. And we reached out to Mike Benz for a conversation on the disinformation industry after reading the points he raised in an article from the Daily Caller titled Potentially Monstrous. Musk's ex may be on the verge of enforcing censorship similar to his predecessors, experts say. He is based in South Florida. Mike, thanks for coming on our radio station. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. First question, the U.S. State Department. Where does that fall on the disinformation spectrum? Can you tell us? Are you asking in the sense of disinformation they police or disinformation they uh, disseminate? Your your choice. Um, uh, so I try not to speak disparagingly of, uh, of, of the State Department and folks. My, my focus is on the boomerang effect that the State Department's operations have on domestic operations in the U.S., and especially the move into censorship and speech control, uh, that being fixed, sort of added to the toolkit of, of soft power influence from the State Department is particularly considered, uh, I consider that to be, you know, a nightmare house of horrors as a U.S. citizen. Yeah. Uh, but I can I can only imagine that being subject to that as a foreign citizen uh, would not, uh, would generate a fair amount of resentment. So, you know, it's one of these things where I try not to say, Oh, the State Department is a, is a fount of disinformation. It's hard to argue when people make that that argument uh, in in certain times. Um, but you know what I would say is that I strongly admonish the State Department's move into censoring speech on the internet. And I think if they don't pull back on it uh, quite soon, it's going to be too late. This word misinformation, and I'm hearing disinformation now, and malinformation more recently. So those group of words are becoming more familiar, let's say. Is there a, a sort of a, a tipping point where this word, even though it's been around for a bit of time, came to mean what we're talking about now? Yeah, so disinformation in the 20th century was really a military term. You know, it really referred to a kind of military top-down or, or government-disseminated uh issuance of false information in order to sort of materially mislead an, an adversary nation state. Uh, and what happened was, uh, as the internet began to make it difficult for establishment, media, and government partners to control discourse, and therefore to control elections and the course of things like foreign policy, uh, there became a redirection of that word disinformation to refer from you know something that a foreign intelligence agency would do to something that domestic citizens would do if that was in support of a political party or a political movement that was yeah. opposed by the foreign policy establishment. But really, it started with this kind of Russiagate idea that that Russian disinformation was permeating uh, the internet. This is really started after the 2014 Crimea annexation, but then really hit the hit the juice when Brexit and then the U.S. 
uh, election of Trump happened in 2016. So it started with Russian disinformation. And then when the 2019 Mueller probe fell apart and Russiagate sort of ended, they had all this censorship infrastructure under Russian, Russian disinformation. So they just switched their talking points. Instead of folding it all up, they just kept all the censorship infrastructure in place and said, actually, you know what? Domestic citizens uh, are also uh, spouting disinformation as well. We don't even need the Russians for it. Then COVID hit. And now we're in a brave new world where disinformation could be you sitting on the toilet at 930 talking about a random opinion about the energy sector. And suddenly, you know, the U.S. government is uh, is censoring what you can and can't say. Was there ever any meaningful Russian disinformation, really? No, not uh, as uh, now. This is obviously a subjective assessment and I'm, and I'll give you mine. But uh, the the Russian disinformation on social media uh, meme was generated by the U.S. intelligence community, ratified by the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee, and amplified in the press on the most bogus dog water of evidence you've ever seen in your life. It started with a 15-page CIA memo on January 6, 2017, which sort of, this is two weeks before Trump took office in, in uh, after the 2016 election, and it was it was all weasel words. There was not a single bit of forensic evidence cited in the entire report that didn't stop the entire intelligence community from agreeing with that consensus. And and systematically, every single thing that they said the Russians were doing was walked back. First, they said it was Russian bots and trolls. But then it turned out they couldn't really find anything except something from what was called the Internet Research Agency in Russia. And, and so the Justice Department sued them. But then some of the defendants defended themselves in court and sought discovery motions. So the Justice Department dropped the cases, saying if they had to disclose how they knew it was Russian disinformation, then it would jeopardize U.S. national security secrets. Then CrowdStrike walked back. This was uh, one of these digital forensics uh, yeah. firms that was engaged around uh, you know Russian hacking. Uh, and they walked back their initial claim that Russians had, had hacked servers and said, well, well our our evidence is only circumstantial, not direct. And then the only bots that were actually discovered and, and validated were ones that Democrat Party operatives, like a firm called New Knowledge, actually purchased themselves and mass subscribed to Republican candidates. There's a case in November 2017 called New Knowledge LLC, which is run by Democrat Party operatives. In, in a close U.S. Senate election, they purchased 23,000 fake Russian bots, meaning, meaning bot farms that used a VPN to create the appearance that they were that their server was located in Russia, mass subscribed them to Republican candidates close to Trump, and then told their media allies that they were being backed by the Russians. So the only known Russian bots that we know of were ones that were created by U.S. political opposition candidates. Now that doesn't mean they don't exist, but they've not been proven at all. Not even not even the beginnings of proof have been articulated. And even the worst case scenario, $150,000 of Facebook ads, which is what's alleged. And even that was split between BLM and pro and Trump content. Black Lives Matter is what that is. Even that was $150,000. Now that's one middle, you know, upper middle class salary in the US. Yeah. Hillary Clinton's campaign spent $1.3 billion. If you can swing election, an entire election, with $150,000, let alone invert the entire, uh, you know, predicate of, of freedom of speech, um, then then the system is is basically totally corrupt. If you if you buy if you buy that, and it seemed that um, that such low level of spend to influence an entire election of one of the most enduring democracies on the planet, that was laughable at the time because I remember that, but it, no one seemed to really question it. It was like, oh well, yeah, that kind of makes sense. 
that was my impression anyway, or our impression here, that it went without much challenge at the time. Well, that's because it was an intelligence community assessment. And good luck being a mainstream media organization questioning intelligence assessments. You're going to uh, basically draw the ire of the U.S. State Department. Your access will get cut off for scoops and interviews. Uh, it's it's an incestuous pond there between mainstream media and U.S. government institutions. And by the way, I'm not attacking my own country by saying this. I, I, this right. is a call yeah. for reform. It doesn't have to be this way. Uh, but the fact is, is we as Americans now have a hard time talking about independent media and the need for other countries to have a free and independent media when we ourselves are so captured by government-sponsored or government-partnered media organizations here on our own shores. Well, you won't be surprised necessarily to hear that basically it's the same where we are. You know, we've got the same, it's smaller scale, but those relationships are pretty obvious and we're part of five eyes. So I guess there are overlaps in you know the security community and they have common strategies and it's like that in australia and talking to friends in canada it's kind of like that there so you're not the only one but i know you know that i'm intensely aware yes you know yeah. although i'd like to hear from from you what you're being subject to in new zealand i i find it uh i find it very interesting some of the smaller uh, Five Eyes countries are often kind of experimental pawns for soft power projection uh, ideas that will soon hit the American shores. So, can you tell me a little bit more about what well, it's, it's the the um, automatic supporting of of government narratives without any questioning or balanced reporting? It's very obvious, you know. Well, and, wasn't there the fa the famous quote by your former prime minister? Uh, a single point of truth? Yeah, the podium of truth. That's right. So it's, you know, it's an overlapping thing. Yeah, well, that's very deliberate. You know, there was, um, I think, once the once the power of Internet censorship became apparent, it became folded into the soft power projection toolkit of both the U.S. and U.K. governments in, in a very strong way, in the same way that media saturation was always a big focus in the 20th century, you know, during the ideological war against communism. And there were all these, you know, um, basically state created media proprietaries, such as Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, Radio, Li Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia, um, and all of the sort of NGOs uh, associated with, with, a, with a mature media environment with a lot of US and UK capacity building. In the same way that media saturation was an important tool of soft power projection in the 20th century, once this Pandora's box got cracked open in 2016, uh, the, the transatlantic foreign policy establishment here, you know, US, UK, Brussels, basically uh, decided that they thought they had found El Dorado, a kind of golden promised land of being able to control political outcomes around the world by, uh, by being able to simply win elections or control elections by simply banning opposition parties from being able to have a voice. And if you don't have a voice online in the information era and you're kicked back to the industrial era, you can't compete with, uh, with, with campaigns that do, especially if you don't have mainstream media support. So the Brexit vote only happened because of social media. The Trump, the Trump win only happened because of, of social media. The Bolsonaro win in Brazil only happened because of social media. The Salvini win in Italy. I mean, you can go down the list 
Uh, and, you know, there was when when there started to be this you know, sort of populist alignment around the world of domestic political parties who were starting to win uh, very convincingly in elections using only the Internet. Uh, you know, there was basically the Empire Strikes Back with this with this plan to roll out the ability to to mass censor and using artificial intelligence and these really nasty tools that you don't stand a chance against. Um, to to be able to end public debate, so you're not even really in the conversation to be able to have a fighting chance. Oh yeah, I should have mentioned the UK. The obviously in there as well. In this new era of, because I get it on on mainstream, you know, conventional terrestrial media, and how that had sort of been baked in for a long time. But with online and social media, how were they able to move in on that? Given you would have thought that the companies, the operators of those platforms in their very DNA would have resisted that, but they didn't. Well, to every company is a little bit different and resisted it in varying ways for, for, for a period of time for, for you know, in, in their own ways. And I can, I can walk through what that is. And let me again say that, you know, I'm not, this is a difficult situation um, you know, being you know formerly with the State Department and, and loving my country, uh, because yeah. you know I, I don't I don't want to be too hard on the use of certain soft power projection tools uh, to be able to maintain you know U.S. interests abroad. I think that's an important thing um, you know for, for us as Americans to have to have a voice uh, in, in other systems and be able to potentially push back against things that would really harm us. Yeah. Um, but yeah. there, but there are certain tools that are too dirty to use. And, and once you start using them, the, the power corrupts absolutely. And, and censorship of speech is one of those things. And, you know, in, in terms of the tech companies, you know, it, it's important to remember that, that the tech companies themselves have a very rich history growing out of the very same, sort of government apparatus that would come for them on the censorship side. You know, there was a big push for internet freedom led by the U.S. government in the entire 1990s and, to, and 2000s. You know, it, it, there's not, there's more than a little bit of irony uh, to to the fact that the very things that, that the U.S. government through the State Department and other equities are pushing back on now and trying to destroy are the things they themselves created in the 90s and the aughts. So, for example, um, all the anonymity software uh, that that people use, um, such as VPNs to hide your IP address, or end-to-end -end encrypted chat so that governments can't spy on you, or or Tor, the dark web, you know, so that you can surf the the web and and buy goods and services anonymously. All of those things were were DARPA projects. They, you know, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, you know, basically military research. Um, because the U.S. State Department and the interagency here had articulated a doctrine of Internet freedom um, and and pumped a ton of money into it. And all of the corporate institutions got on board with that as well. Everyone was very, very pro-freedom for 25 years. It wasn't until freedom started to backfire in in uh, in elections and that uh, that those same institutions moved in lockstep towards censorship. But again, uh, do you take it take an institution like Google? I mean, can you can you really say that Google was ever a private company? It, it was started in I think nineteen ninety six uh, as a as is a project by Larry Page and, and Sergey Brin at at Stanford. But they were getting their Stanford PhD. But 
it was they were on a DARPA grant, uh, and that that grant was part of the CIA and NSA's massive digital data systems program to be able to fly, to be able to track so-called birds of a feather as they congregated together online right. during okay. the early part of the internet. Yeah. You know, uh, Google the first year it went public, I think two thousand four. They they became a military contractor. The only reason they have Google Maps is because they basically bought the CIA's keyhole satellite software. I mean, you can't really say that these that some of these institutions that became government tools weren't government tools before that. So the operation of or, or the influence on this uh, these platforms, this form of media. Is it just like the security agencies or does it extend to, you know, whole of government? I mean, is it siloed or is it bigger than that? Just trying to get an idea of where it starts and where it ends. I refer to something called the censorship industry to describe this, which has which has four categories of institutions, government institutions, private sector institutions, civil society institutions, and news media and fact-checking institutions. Those four categories together comprise what's called the whole of society framework for dealing with mis- and disinformation. They say that that you know mis- and disinformation online is a whole of society problem, and it requires a whole of society solution with government, private sector, civil society, and news media and fact-checking organizations all sort of fuse together into the into the nucleus of a single cell. So that's you know that's now now that's driven in large part by uh, by government coordination and government funding and government coercion and government outsourcing. Um, but it folds in you know this entire constellation, rapidly growing constellation, I should add, of all these outside partners who've formed this basically you know governmental apparatus for soft power projection on the negative speech side that is on the on the killing speech side and this used to be the case for satu- you know for saturating media into into a region um but the fact that it's now for removing speech from a region um means again you don't ha- you don't have a chance i mean you, you always have a chance against propaganda if you yourself or, or lies from the government if you yourself are able to have a platform and convince enough people the government's wrong that's what a democracy, I would think, is all about, is the government has the bully pulpit. It's it's theoretically, if legitimate, you know, is should be able to advocate for, for its own agenda. But then the citizens have basically, they're the ones who elected the government, and they're the ones who will be electing the next government. They have a right of discourse and reply and consensus formation on their own to be able to kick the bums out if they're doing a bad job or vote for a different regime if they if they disagree. But the world we're in after 2016 has completely inverted that. There's, there's really no democratic process if you're not even allowed to, to go through the consensus formation pro, uh, process to, to – if you have you know, basically government propaganda and saturation and you're not even able to take the steps to organize against that or to speak against that or to challenge it, then this is a totally – this is a much, much darker thing than, than you know, even – and a sort of Operation Mockingbird type thing in the 20th century, or a kind of you know DOD, CIA, MI6, mainstream media alliance. I mean that you can you can you can sort of justify that in the sense that that's part of statecraft, and you use the assets that are available to you. Yeah, yeah. But 
but you don't even have a fighting ch- you don't have a chance against this if you can't speak yourself yeah what what happened in 2016 i mean obviously trump but you know he was a well-known businessman you know reality tv star the the reaction to that just seemed so over the over the top can we explain why? I mean, why was that guy such a, or or what he represented, or I don't know, why was that so threatening? So this is where I sometimes get in trouble with people thinking I sympathize with the censorship regime, but let me explain how they see it. So yep. at the time, you, you remember the Trump election happened just after Brexit. Brexit was June 2016. Trump's election was November 2016. And you had 20 EU parliamentary elections coming up where domestic right-wing populist parties were all doing amazingly well in the polls. You know, that was uh, Marine Le Pen's uh, uh, National Rally Party in France. You had the Brexit Party in, in the UK. You had the, you know, the, the five-star movement in Italy. You had the Vox Party in Spain. You had the Greek National Party in Greece. You had this entire domino uh, of, of populist parties. And at the time, NATO was, was concerned that Brexit would give rise to Frexit and Italexit and Grexit and Spexit. And the entire EU would come apart, meaning NATO would come apart, meaning there would be no enforcement arm for the IMF, for the World Bank. The entire rules-based international order would collapse. And if, and if they didn't create a censorship industry, something to be able to kill alternative news on the Internet, then basically the entire world created after World War II would come undone because people would be able to freely shitpost on the Internet, just like Nigel Farage shitposted his way you know, with those viral videos. Forgive my, my language, but, uh, you know, when he was going up against Herman Van Rompuy uh, in the EU Parliament, that was that was his ticket to fame. That was how yeah. he was racking up millions. And he wasn't he wasn't loved by the London press. Um, same thing with Trump. Trump didn't get a single mainstream media endorsement, not a single print media uh, outlet in the entire country, coast to coast of the United States, endorsed Trump in the 2016 election. But he, but by engagement numbers. He was up four to five to one on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and other mediums. And this is the same story again and again. But after 25 years of mature internet, independent voices were now getting larger than the New York Times. So, you know, the empire struck back, so to speak. And, and in their, in their, as they saw it, and just to sort of answer your question about, you know, what was it about Trump? It was, it was much bigger than just Trump. I mean, this was a rules based international order thing. And then when Bolsonaro won in Brazil and Modi won re-election in India, and then Italy fell, and you had all of these, and then the AFD party was rising in Germany, you you had this five-alarm fire that there had to be the creation of a full-throated, intelligence agency-driven, State Department-funded, DOD-coordinated, MI6 interlinked, or I should say UK foreign office, you know, British state, City of London interlinked, you know, transatlantic democracy alliance, because this is what they folded it under, this idea that, you know, if you vote the wrong way, uh, you're undermining democracy. I mean, it's, it's kind of hilarious the way yeah. that democracy has been redefined, you know, to mean the exact opposite of democracy, but maybe story for another day. But the point is, is you can actually see the logic of what their fear was when you understand that these are all professionals whose own careers and salaries and prestige and and maybe perhaps their own, to some extent, good faith ideologies are dependent on the maintenance of these institutions that voters had rejected. Um, and so they use the resources and power of those institutions to crush the individuals who are trying to vote against them. 
Okay, well, that, that makes a, a lot of sense. Um, let's um, spool right up to today, and one of the really fascinating things that's happened recently is Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, now X, and that was quite a move. Do you agree that that was quite a move on, on his part? It's incredible. I wrote a, I wrote an article, I think, the, a couple of days after the acquisition was announced uh, called uh, Duzex Muskina. Uh, basically, you know, this Duzex, you know, Machina sort of thing, you know, the, uh, you know, where where a god descends on the on the stage of a Greek theater to sort of intervene on the plots events. And, uh, you know, it's considered sort of a lazy uh, storytelling concept because it just sort of solves all the problems uh, instantaneously by divine intervention. And, you know, I, I wrote a, I wrote a piece when it first happened saying, you know, oh, it, really, is that all it took $44 billion this whole time was all we needed. I mean, it's a huge amount of money, but, that but I was funny. joking to say that, if, yeah, I was joking to say that, of course it's not. Uh, and in fact, you know, um, this, the, the trial of what Musk is trying to do around free speech is going to be the trial of, of the century. I mean, the, the, it, there's so much riding, there's so much against him and he really is sort of a man against, against history in terms of the momentum of the national security state and these, these corporate forces, these government forces, these civil society forces. Uh, and, you know, if he can pull off the sissy fissy struggle that he's, he's attempting, uh, you know, I think that everybody in the world should be sending their their spirit energy to him and to and to help. I think he's done incredible work so far with bringing people back to the platform, with fighting off advertiser boycotts, um, with with taking care of internal personnel issues. I've got some you know quibbles here and there, but but I can also see a strategic uh, a strategic vision for for doing some things that that were compromise solutions. Um, but I'm, I'm tremendously impressed with, with what Musk has done so far. And I think he's one of the most important people of our generation. The fact, though, that he was allowed to do it, because I'm thinking the forces that we've just been talking about, you know, a, a lot of power there. Forty four billion sounds like a lot, but in the scheme of things and, you know, the size of the budget of someone like the U.S. government. I mean, it's less than 10% of the defense budget, and they still let him do it? Well, sort of, right? I mean, the Justice Department now has six, I think, different uh, criminal and civil investigations into him. He is currently in the pro the early stages of being torn asunder by the U.S. government in the same way that Donald Trump is. You know, Donald Trump is facing four separate criminal indictments, two of them from the Justice from the Biden Justice Department itself and then two of them i think at the state level um as well as a is a parade of civil lawsuits bullshit civil lawsuits uh in order to bankrupt a billionaire and to you know make him run up these legal fees and he's facing something like 750 years in prison you know okay. which is uh you know so so they're doing that to trump and and the early stage of the stages of that are now being rolled out against elon musk i think four or five of these all happened in the past two weeks uh but what i should also say is I've long made the point that I'm not sure 44 billion would have been enough um, or, or Musk would have had the buffer that he currently has if he had been the world's richest man worth $250 billion on paper running a lemonade stand. Um, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Um, Musk has a very unique portfolio of assets that are that are critical to the U.S. government's operations. Um, 
I think something like one to two thirds of all satellites in, in low Earth orbit are from our SpaceX satellites. These are critical to U.S. and to, to, and to Five Eyes, um, you know, for everything from in, for intelligence to, you know, to telecommunications to, you know, um, all, all of the infrastructure that's built on top of satellite technology. It's, that is an indispensable company for for the U.S. national security state. So too is Tesla with its with its uh, battery technology um, for for U.S. advantage in the, in the green revolution. These are you know if, if the U.S. government were to simply use something like Cepheus, which is a, which is a, which is a law that allows you to nationalize companies under national security predicate, the message that would send the international community that you can't invest in America because and they you know the these these huge huge companies run by the world's richest man can just be you know nationalized in a moment's notice like th- that's that's in a sense that the US government is faces a thorny issue with musk he's internationally beloved he's got multiple corporate assets that are completely indispensable to the operations of the defense department the state department and the intelligence community um but he's just bought this social media platform that is arguably the sort of intellectual public square of the day and could in a close election theoretically you know swing an entire election when you when you extrapolate out all the news stories that can disseminate on such a large platform so it's a tough situation the government is in trying to control him and it allows for some of this sort of cat and mouse you know sort of chase um, that that someone like zuckerberg might not have latitude to do. I mean, Zuckerberg did not want to go down the road that he did with internet censorship. He made a speech in, I think, San Jose in 2019, where he had said, you know, censorship had gone too far and he wasn't comfortable with all what was happening on the platform. Uh, two weeks later, uh, a massive ad boycott um, with participating NGOs from the U.S. State Department cost the company $60 billion in ad revenue. Wow. And Zuckerberg okay. folded, you know, like a lawn chair. Um, but they can do that to Zuckerberg. It's un. I'm not saying they can't do that to Musk. I'm definitely not saying that, but it's a little bit more complicated, and you know it remains to be seen how alliances shape up in response. Uh, Musk has a little bit more play than some of the other um, moguls do. Some people are saying that he hasn't gone far enough. There are still people who are not on the platform, and uh, obviously there's uh, ad revenue to always keep in mind the business model. Have you seen any signs that um, that well going all the way is one thing? Uh, I guess no one ever goes all the way. But do you think he can keep it as uncensored as as possible? He's got a hell of a fight on his hands, hasn't he? He's got a hell of a fight because they keep raising the stakes on what they're willing to do, including with this new EU Digital Services Act and its disinformation compliance. I mean, you just had a. You just had a nasty gram from the head of the EU Commission, I think earlier today. You know, accusing X of, yeah. yeah, I mean, I like that. Like, too. You know, accuse, <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's it's a threat letter, and um, yeah. you know, it's usually accompanied by you know, usually the barking might persist for some period of time without biting, but ultimately it does, and even the bark itself is sort of a rallying call to the whole of society partners that you know that this is that there will be a bite soon, so they all need to be in place for it. Um, but they're using these rule of law predicates, meaning they're establishing laws requiring censorship now in the Western world um, that are that are that sort of end the ability to fight against it. Um, and I 
I don't know actually what comes after laws banning, like laws requiring you to censor in a region. This is something that the U.S., because of our First Amendment, has not had to has not had to deal with directly. Now we've had to deal with that effectively because you have this censorship industry, which is government driven, and you can very easily say, well, the government created this cutout to to install the censorship that it wanted. And that's absolutely a First Amendment issue. We have a major Supreme Court case hearing that in the next few weeks. But, you know, State Department folks are very keenly aware that the European Union doesn't have a First Amendment. No country uh, except except the United States does. And in, you know, you know what I, <laughs> now I've sort of called this history of retweeting itself, but a lot of the European censorship uh, story now is a repeat of what happened in 2017, when you had all these U.S. State Department officials who all thought they were going to get promoted into the National Security Council of the Hillary Clinton White House on the on Election Day 2016, yeah, didn't happen. They thought yeah. didn't happen, right? But Trump was a you know 95 to 5 underdog on Election Day, and uh, suddenly you know he pulls out this win. They all get fired, but they all have these huge relationships with with their European counterparts. A lot of them did the sanctions negotiations. Um, uh, sanctions coordination against Russia um, in uh, after the Crimea annexation. So they had all of these relationships with the European regulators, and and they basically redid the roadshow for coordinating sanctions against Russia to coordinate censorship of online speech using a sort of Russian disinformation predicate that right. culminated in a, in a German law called NetzDG in August 2017. And that basically forced all of the social media companies. Now, Germany is the industrial base of Europe. Uh, you, you don't want to lose the German market. It's uh, And so companies all installed these artificial intelligence censorship capacities to comply with NetzDG, which is basically a US State Department plot in a lot of ways. I mean, they basically talked openly about how if Europe moves first, we have a First Amendment, so we can't go first. But if we can get Europe to do it and we can create this sort of code of best practices and then then there will be this global continuity with all the tech companies. They'll be using that technology anyway. They'll have the infrastructure preloaded anyway. They'll have the staffer compliance anyway. So it will effectively subject American citizens and British citizens and French citizens and Italian citizens to the same thing because, you know, Germany is is Germany. And um you know, and, and they're doing that again, but this time it's more—it's more than just requiring. Um, it's more than just requiring personnel and technology on the censorship front. Uh, it looks like the way they're trying to build it out is to is to basically have a, a top-down government censorship of you know you need to hire certain you know certain vetted intermediary firms to tell you that you're in compliance with the law on disinformation and. and this is something that you know we've i've never lived in a totally authoritarian country where like the law prohibits you from even beginning to organize against the government and that is something so foreign to the american psyche and to the american lived experience um from for my entire life i actually i don't know what the answer is because you, you would say well the answer is to vote in a government who would you know who would repeal that law but how yeah. are you going to vote in a government if you can't open your mouth or speak the words associated with a party that could challenge the government? Exactly. I mean, we're in this very, very you know, dark world that, that the Western world has never been in before. So what do you do then if you're a platform 
at scale because there's um there's a threshold for how big you have to be to be in the sights of those laws. If you're small, they're not really interested in you. I think it's in the tens of millions users that that kicks in. What do you do? You could pull out of the market, couldn't you? Yeah, in theory, you could. But then not only does that make you lose, you know, your not only does that kill your sort of market representation in the area, not only does that, um, you know, basically create room for a competitor to swoop in and make it so that you can never even come back into the region because people will all be on a, on a different platform for a period of years and a network effect will develop. But that also, it kills your interlinkages, your ability to, you know, to even be a global platform if you're missing a huge region like the EU. Think of what that does even to your margins or to, or to, your, or to your gross revenue when, in, when a huge 450 million person market is just lost, you know, uh, in, in one fell swoop. And not only is it the immediate ad revenue, but it's all the follow-on services, you know, and, and, and all the, all the corporates. I mean, there's, it's devastating. It's completely devastating. I mean, it's, it North Korea ifies you if you can only operate within the tiny little country you're in, you can't, you can't be a global player. And the issue is, is you are competing against platforms like, like Facebook and, and YouTube and Google and TikTok that, that, play ball with the national security state and will do what they're told on censorship. So they are going to have, you're now going to be against an overcapitalized competitor. You're, I mean, it completely kills the idea of a free market. I mean, it's really a sort of cartel system they're installing um, where, you know, you are whitelisted and brought into a sort of social media OPEC. If you censor what the government says and you are kicked out and unable to distribute uh, if, if you don't. So you've got to sell your soul in a way, right? That's yeah, a- I mean, this is basically the last gasp of the idea that that the Western world is distinct from the authoritarian countries that we declare war on, which is why I scream bloody murder about, please stop this, guys, turn the ship around. Hmm. Because, you know, it's not like this is lost on other countries. I mean, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs actually wrote published a memo before the last uh, summit for democracy that the Biden administration hosted, arguing that they're actually a truer democracy than the U.S. And one of the things that they argued is that the U.S. doesn't even believe in freedom of speech. You know, they, they even kicked their own president out of, uh, you know, off, off of a social media platform. We haven't done that to a high ranking, you know, CCP official. And you're, you're staring at that. You're looking at this on the page, especially as a State Department person. You're like. What what's the counter argument to this? What are you? What are you going to say? No, we we didn't do it. We're still calling to do it. You know, it's not even like a whoopsie. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. The the consensus right now at state is like we need to do more of it. So you know, our ability to um, to use values based diplomacy has been com- has been completely neutered, dismembered, disarmed, decimated by by this move into authoritarian speech control. And the total myopia echo chamber within the foreign policy establishment and the national security state, who's so myopically focused on on the on the political and, and to some extent some of the geopolitical considerations. It's I mean it's so ironic because these are the same people who capacity build all these humanitarian NGOs around freedom of expression and and you know and in, in independent media uh, for their own preferred dissident groups all over the world, but. You know, that's why I think there's a service for, for people 
like me and people like people who are part of the coalition I'm in, uh, to be able to make our voices so loud that that they they have to negotiate with this. Frankly, I think a lot of them in their own silos don't even see the ramifications like a bull in a china shop they just they don't even see what they've stepped on because they don't really interface with the civilian world in the same way you know they're they, they live in their posh little georgetown estates or their or their little palo alto enclaves that they don't really deal with the middle and working class in that way and uh i've had a lot of people tell me personally who are, who are you know, within you know those communities who said you know actually it wasn't until this became a public you know discourse over the past year that I even realized I was a part of something that uh, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. So maybe there is a way to turn it around if we can build that consensus, but time is running out. Yeah, because um, I think you said before last gasp, you may have said that, but I, I, I came from somewhere, which is kind of depressing actually. But when you say last gasp, everything you know, um, and AI, you mentioned AI as well, and that is kind of like next level again, isn't it? Because that real times polices every everything all the time. Yeah, AI is actually the secret linchpin to it all. Uh, I'm writing a whole book uh, on you know, which I mean, my entry into this really started with the AI story. Um, I was a somewhat competitive chess player as a kid, and I lived through the period where. Uh, Gary Kasparov lost to Deep Blue, and I remember as a as a kid using chess engines for training and listening to these older fuddy duddies talking about how oh chess computers will never defeat the purity of the human spirit, and you know oh they're beating these club players but they'll never beat masters, but oh they're being masters but they'll never beat Gary Kasparov, and then you know Gary Kasparov loses and like the soul gets ripped out of the the entire game, um, but uh, you know th- there was. There was a very palpable feeling, even as a child, looking at these engines where it's like, you just, there's no way to defeat this thing. Like, yeah. this is like, a, this is like a human trying to, you know, watching the Wright brothers develop the airplane and, uh, and, and saying, well, you know what? I'm a sprinter. You know, these planes are pretty nifty that they're working on, but I'll, well, I'll be able to outrun them. Yeah. You know, I can outrun anybody in my thing. And it's like, you don't understand like the power of these things. And, and that has actually been the secret sauce to all of internet censorship after 2016 has been the development of a technique called natural language processing or NLP, um, which is which is a way to basically um, sense meaning out of words. You know, in the same way that Google um, is what it is because of Google AdWords and the ability for words to represent topics, products, markets, services, and bidding on words is basically the bread and butter of how Google. Google operates its 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 business model. They they own the words uh, that that you search for on the internet. Well, if you can do that at the political level through um, through having these AI techniques, what they do is they, they they do something called topographical network mapping. They they if there's if there's a political group they want to censor or an idea or an emerging narrative or uh, or a political party, they create these these community maps. By, by the kind of words associated with that movement, you know, so for, for example, during COVID, uh, you know, negative efficacy was like a term that was plugged into the AI if you try to say the vaccines didn't work. Or all these codes for resistance to lockdowns or masks or vaccines or uh, or or, distribu- or distribution uh, or COVID origins, all of these things were network maps so that the specific words used to talk about them 
as well as images stored in, in, in hashing databases, um, hashtags, uh, the, the, the entire narrative network mapping was created to be able to using, once you have that map, all it takes is a few lines of code and you can suddenly kill tens of millions of voices with, with one fell swoop. It's, uh, it's, it's a godlike control mechanism that's never existed on this planet before. This would be the equivalent if during, this, if during the Cold War, um, you know, when, when the CIA was, was doing battle with communism around the world, if, uh, you know, when they started to develop opposition to left-wing groups in the U.S. who were protesting the Vietnam War and they had something on Operation Chaos where they started infiltrating left-wing student movements and writing all the – trying to steer the direction of the, of the political thing there – what if they had the capacity in the nineteen in the nineteen seventies to just reach into your dinner table, and whenever you were talking with your friends and family about, you know what, actually, I'm not sure our boys should be dying in a war in Southeast Asia, seven thousand miles away. The CIA could just reach in and just turn your volume down to zero. I mean, yeah. that's that's the world we're in right now, and only a very small handful of people actually know that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. What can you do? That, that 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 is the empire right there, right? I mean, that that's unbeatable, isn't it? Is it? It is. It, so this is one of these things where, again, I don't have a, I don't think I have a problem with capacity building of your own message, the knob upturning thing. You know, everyone has got you know has got a problem. You know, the word propaganda is a dirty word, and in, in many respects, it has very dirty elements to it. Uh, you know, uh, from from time to time, but the fact is, is it's pretty. It's it's you speaking your own voice and trying to saturate it, whether you're a government or whether you're an activist or you know whether you're a political party. But there's a there's there's the world of difference between turning your own knob up and turning somebody else's knob down. Well, everybody's knob down. Yeah, everybody's knob down. Tens of millions. This happened in the 2020 election. It happened in COVID, and it wasn't until there was a, a recent pushback on multiple fronts in the US between lawsuits, congressional investigations, media exposés, regulatory reform, you know, budget fights. It wasn't until there was, you know, the past 18 months of pushback that, you know, that there was any, you know, slowing down of that of that train at all, but the fact because they wanted to do this with everything. I mean, I've got these people in clips and I published them on my Twitter timeline and on my foundation's website at Foundation for Freedom Online of them in their own meetings saying, well, we did this for the 2020 election and it was amazing. It got all this stuff killed. Then we did it for COVID. We were able to get, you know, almost completely control the response in the early part of it. Um, how can we roll this out to quote every sensitive policy issue? Um, you know, and, and they started to do that. They started to do it with climate. They started to do it with, with abortion. They started to do it with immigration. They started to do it with energy. Um, and, you know, once it gets to that point, you can't even call it, you know, a, a, I mean, it's it's just greater North Korea. Yeah, good way of putting it. Um, I, I ran into this um, a while back when I was trying to convince um, somebody, well, not convince, but point out somebody I, I knew that there was this laptop from hell around and that there were some not very nice images on it. And one of them was, um, you know, who with a crack pipe. And I tried to message that on Facebook and it wouldn't let me send it. Now, I, I get it, but I, I struggle to understand why someone who's actually not in power um, 
you know, doing something, which, yeah, I mean, you're not going to fall off your seat at that. I mean, you know, there are worse things around. And I'm sure Facebook would have allowed a picture of me doing that to be sent to anyone. So that was clearly sitting in an AI database. The pixels were analyzed and it said no. So yeah, they have, they have some, yeah, they have this this hashing database where you can basically store images and they call it near duplicate replicas where you know if even if you had tried to send a modified version of that image, the the database would have detected probably a near duplicate. This is how for example I believe it was in New Zealand, right? The the Christchurch shooting is that yes, correct? Was. Was that? Yes, it was right. So, so you know, at at that point when that happened, you notice that you know there was the inability to share that. And I'm not suggesting that that very that video should be shared, but at yeah. the technological level, they they added that that video to a, to a database for something called the global. There's basically a, a sort of countering foreign terrorism you know, database that, that images and videos can get uploaded into. And it basically creates, you know, any, anywhere it appears on the internet, it's effectively, you know, flagged by AI, you know, with the, uh, using any number of signatures, video, audio, um, and, and, a, and a bunch of sort of metadata type tags. And you couldn't even post that for like three seconds and then take it down. It was one of these things where at the moment of upload, Facebook blocked, you know, recognized it you know, before you, you know, in, in that interstitial period between uploading the file and it appearing on the site. They call that the nuclear option, this sort of Christchurch call, you know, uh, ability on that. I'm not sure, you know, I need to I need to know more details about the Hunter picture you're talking about. But what I would say is I would I would not refer to Hunter Biden as, as an out of power guy. I mean, he's. um uh, he is very much in the story of of what's happening uh, in the government. In many ways, he's kind of the lead story of it. Uh, I don't know if you've been following some of the intrigues around that laptop. Totally. Um, yeah. But you know, yeah. yeah. But you know, it's it's come out that he's base. He was basically the bag man um, for not only you know his, his father's uh, you know activities around the world, not just in Ukraine with Burisma, but with with the with the Chinese. Uh, with Chinese intelligence, I mean, there's text messages where he's he's talking about his business partners who run, you know, Chinese intelligence agencies, where he's partnered with Chinese energy firms, um, and and looking to get the Chinese to basically, you know, pay the the Bidens for uh, investments in LNG and and, and gas interests. Uh, I mean, it was a whole operation, and then also even within the Ukraine story, the Hunter Biden story is right at the heart of of what the state department and possibly even the central intelligence agency were doing with with the gas market in eastern ukraine so you know hunter is 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 sort of a forrest gump figure here who runs through you know a history of 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 very significant world events um and he now he was protected by the they ran the aston institute which gets 93 percent of its funding from the u.s government and is one of the most senior sort of influential NGOs in the entire country here in the U.S., ran a censorship simulation just days before the Hunter Biden laptop was public. You, you can look this up. It was uh, it was called the Aspen Institute Cyber Summit, you know, and, and they they ran uh, this simulation of what to do in the in the for the entire ten to fifteen days. Um, uh, it, on the run-up to and after the release of the, of the Hunter Biden laptop, it's very similar to what was done with COVID, actually, with the Event 201, if you recall what that was. Right. 
you know, so sort coincidental, of exercise. coincidence or, or, or something more than that? I don't that. think so. I mean, I mean, because here's the thing, the FBI knew about the laptop. Well, we they, know they, they, they had, had the a laptop. long time before that, didn't they? Yeah. And, and they were, they, they had known for a long time, but they were spying on the journalists who were disseminating the results of the laptop. And so they, so all it would have taken were, would be an FBI or a DHS person who was simply told people within that foreign policy establishment that this thing was about to drop. And we know they did because Mark Zuckerberg went on Joe Rogan to, and said that the FBI approached Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you know, seven days before it dropped to say, hey, this, there's going to be a story about this. You know, it would be a good thing if you pre-censored it, Mr. Zuckerberg. And so the fact is, is like the, the FBI and the DHS were at these these Aspen Institute uh, censorship simulations. I mean, they literally had representation from these same agencies. So and, and they were all on the same team. Um, you know, they all had the belief that if Trump won the election, that it would the entire rules based international order would would collapse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's obvious. I mean, the, the, the timing is 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 too much. The networks are too closely embedded. The interests are 100% aligned. It's a smoking gun. Yeah, that um, picture I sent was about 18 months ago, maybe nearly two. It was pretty soon after those images started to come out. Um, They were dealing with it pretty early, way before all that. I don't know if Facebook, you know, know, has, uh, it it could be that they identify drugs. So if you'd send pictures of crack rocks, like, I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to sort of, you know, it could be, I don't know the answer. Could be, Um, you know, so, you know, there's, um, I don't know the answer with that specific thing, but we do know that that was done in a general sense with Hunter Biden laptop materials in the beginning. We know that even the Hunter, even the New York post article itself breaking the Hunter Biden laptop story was not shareable. We know that. Yeah. Well, they got dumped off Twitter, weren't they? They were, they were like removed their account was suspended. I, I forget the exact chronology of what happened to them at the account level, uh, but I, I know that the story itself was not shareable, and there may have been some temporary thing on them as well. But but the fact is, is you know these prohibitions. I mean, this was right before the election, and these prohibitions lasted effectively, you know, through the election. Right. Just to. Um... It's been a really interesting chat, by the way. Thank you for that. Here we have our disinformation project, which is kind of a small scale of what you've been describing. You have in the US, and I'm sure there's some sort of five eyes overlap. In the work you have done, the knowledge you have, um, the things you've found that work and don't work, if we are to fight against something like that or, or this big picture, how do we do it? Well, first, you need to educate people on what you're up against here. Um, can you know if you can give me a few more details? I think you had mentioned that it's based in a university. Can you tell me the university name and uh, so, the, what, what you what you do know about it? Well, that's a bit unknown because they appear to be moving out of that. But historically, they've been based at Auckland University. Auckland is our biggest city. Their funding is not transparent, but they're still in business. So. Someone's still putting the money in, and they seem to have quite a close relationship with mainstream media who who amplify their pronouncements. So that's kind of yeah. how it works. Right. So you know, the first thing is to educate people that when it comes to this disinformation space, 
there's there's essentially no such thing as a sort of independent operator in this. I mean, this this whole field comes from national security, state, foreign policy establishment forces. Uh, when you see the universities entering this, do not for one second extend the, the charitable interpretation that these are just humdrum academics, you know, with a concern for what's right or wrong on the Internet. That has never been the case. And I have studied probably 75 to 85 uh, of these university programs um, because I know that here in the U.S., there's there's over 60 of them that get direct funding from either the National Science Foundation or the Defense Department or the State Department. They're all national security state cutouts. They all work with with the foreign policy establishment and everything they censor. I mean, there's no there's no diversity in their censorship targets. It's everyone's doing the same thing. It's the same talking points. It's not even like, you know, you might be able to make the argument if if they were sort of cutting across streams with each other in terms of what they were censoring or if they were censoring each other. You know, you, you might even be able to make the argument that even though it's sort of government fund, I mean, none of them challenge the government who funds them. None of them, you know, uh, <laughs> none of them have have any, you know, none of them are going to be supporting, you know, the pro-Brexit forces in the, in the UK. None of them are going to be supporting pro-Trump forces in the US. None of them are going to be supporting pro-Modi forces in India. None of them are going to be supporting pro-Bolson. I mean, you can, you know what they're going to do and what they're going to censor by just reading State Department press releases. And so you know, here in the U.S., we do have trans. You know, if you are a 501c3, if, if you are a nonprofit in, in the U.S., per Shava University, one of the you know, one of the issues that they're running into right now is that the funding is transparent, at, or at least some portions of it are transparent, where you can simply look up in the U.S. database, whether or not they're government funded, and that will that will tell you how much, when when the grant was, who the grant coordinator is. You can get all those details, and so it's very easy to be able to call out these these institutions as being government cutouts, not really bona fide universities. And here's another thing: you have to remember that there's a distinction between being an academic because you know you uh, came up in the academic world, you teach students in classes. That's what people think about academics. You can just be a pure political operative. You could have just come directly from the Central Intelligence Agency or the UK Foreign Office and suddenly be an academic because now your perch is at a center rather than teaching courses and students about a deep subject matter expertise. I mean, you have some of these people who are very, very senior uh, censorship industry, disinformation academics in the US. Their degrees are in electrical engineering, you know, uh, having <laughs> yeah. worked in like, you know, a, a cybersecurity malware thing. And now they're determining, you know, whether or not, you know, uh, you, you know masks work or not uh, should get you kicked off the Internet for life. So these people are completely unqualified for a job in academia. They're not academics in the slightest. They're political operatives and they're government cutouts. There should be no legitimacy extended to them whatsoever. And um, I should have mentioned also they have an associated group which has just been set up called Fact Check New Zealand, which is, I mean, fact check doesn't mean fact check, does it? I mean, so you no, no, it means narrative check. check. It means narrative yeah. check. It means it means are you are are you consistent with the narrative? I mean, this is all of these again. The fact checking industry would not exist without government support. Yeah. It's government. The government pays for those jobs of those those fact checkers. 
the government helps develop the technology, the AI technology that the fact checkers use to be able to detect viral you know, news stories and viral narratives and to be able to do the network mapping, to be able to see who's spreading it. And do we need to fact check this or that and triage the whole thing? Uh, you know, these are these are censorship gargoyles created by Western governments to control the political processes that will impact that government. That's all it is. Yeah. It's quite a successful term, though, isn't it? Because people assign a certain level of credibility with the term fact check. I've heard people rolls off the tongue. Oh, that's been fact checked. Yeah. That's been yeah. Look, if you're if, if you're speeding down a highway at 95 miles an hour, completely asleep at the wheel uh, in your own mind, then that's that's a persuasive term. Um, yeah. But the fact is, is I think a lot of people who had early buy in to the concept of fact checks, um, it, it started to become a dirty word as well. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these things, I mean, just in the same way, fake news was a term that was frequently used you know, by the national security state and the foreign policy establishment to try to cast aspersions on, on populist political movements. It sort of became inverted over time to mean them. And, uh, you know, that's why, you know, I don't even use, you know, their own terminology on those things, except, you know, when when having a sort of academic discourse. But the fact is, is, you know, fact checking, these are just little gargoyles sent up, set up to defend government narratives. That's it. Mike, if people want to find out more about you and see what you're saying, uh, what's the best place or where's the best place to find you? So our foundation's work is at foundationforfreedomonline.com, all one word, Foundation for Freedom Online. And you can find me on Twitter at, or I should say X, at Mike Ben Cyber, all one word, Mike Ben Cyber. When do you think they're going to drop the formerly, the platform known as Twitter? When do you think they're going to drop that? Because I hear that all the time too. X, <laughs> the platform formerly named Twitter, like Prince. Remember Prince? <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, for Meta, for Meta and Facebook, it, it you know, it, it took probably about a year because, you know, there's right. there's this whole history. So, uh, you know, but I think it's it's starting to catch. Mike Benz of the Foundation for Freedom Online. It's been really cool having you on our radio station and hearing what you uh, had to say there. It's very informative for well, myself and the listeners. So thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Have a, have a great one. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.